Welcome to Anticdotes, a podcast where we hear from aunts who are making a difference in their nieces and nephews' lives and who are learning life lessons along the way. Hear new ideas about how you can connect with your nieces and nephews and become the favorite aunt. I'm your host, Heidi Fry. Arcadia Yule recently earned the title of Miss Boston and is competing for Miss Massachusetts in July. Arcadia is a first-generation high school graduate who is now pursuing a PhD in developmental psychology. She's a published children's book author and playwright and a successful content creator. She shares resources for students applying to higher education and provides realistic depictions of life as a graduate student with her social media followers. As a stalking survivor, she advocates for dating and domestic violence awareness and prevention. I'm excited to have Arcadia with us today to help us ants navigate some of these topics with our nieces and nephews and learn from her experiences. Thank you, Arcadia, for being with us today on Anticdotes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. And as I shared in the intro, you are currently reigning as Miss Boston. Could you share more about your journey to becoming Miss Boston and what motivates you to be a high achiever? Definitely. So I am very recently crowned Miss Boston. I was crowned on February 12th, I believe was the date, but it is not necessarily my first time within the Miss America organization. So if there's anyone listening who's not familiar with Miss America or MAO, as we call it, um, First step is to compete at a local organization, so Miss Boston, and then this summer I will compete for the title of Miss Massachusetts, and if I win that, I would then go on to compete for Miss America. So I have been involved in Miss America in one shape or form for a lot of my life, and I'm sure that at some point today we'll really dive into how much Miss America has meant to me and what it's done for me. Partially, that is really related to my education. So I'm actually a PhD student at Boston University as well. And so I study a lot of child development. And in terms of what motivates me, hmm, I would say I'm very family motivated. I am a first-generation student. I was the first person in my family to have the opportunity to go to a four-year college. And so being able to accomplish new things both on behalf of myself and on behalf of my parents as well is a really big deal for me. We wish you the best of luck on Miss Massachusetts as well. Thank you so so much. Yeah, yeah, very motivating. And one of the areas that you dedicate your volunteer time and resources is with a rape crisis center. Could you share more about your volunteer activities and how you realized you had experienced stalking as a teenager? Mm -hmm. So back when I was in my undergraduate education, actually, I was starting to dive into psychology and I knew that I was really interested in that. And one of the ways that I wanted to really explore my career a little bit more was to get hands-on experience actually volunteering in the field. So I got a summer internship at the Rape Crisis Intervention Service of Carroll County, which is in Maryland. 
And I worked there throughout the summer doing very typical intern things. I was shredding paper and getting coffees. Um, But then also they were hiring a outreach coordinator who would actually go into high schools and give presentations on dating violence. And because I was younger and closer in age to the students, they had me actually sit in on the interview process and had me watch some of these presentations to give my feedback. And it was on one of those days that I was watching one of the presentations and I'm listening to this woman speak about the different forms of abuse and she goes into stalking and she defines stalking as this sort of, you know, repeated harassment that is unwanted or strikes fear in the victim. And I listened to the definition and I listened to her to describe some different examples and all of these alarm bells started going off in my head where I was like, wait a minute. That sounds that sounds uncomfortably familiar. That sounds like something I have actually been through. And I was able to think back. I was about 14 years old when I was stalked. It was a classmate in my school um, who had asked me to be his girlfriend. And I was very flattered, but I politely declined. And he ended up, it started with just like really aggressively staring at me in class to the point that everybody else noticed. The teacher noticed. We had to switch our seats. He started following me throughout the hallways at school. He would follow me to my bus at the end of the day. And I actually found out that he was harassing my friends online too. He was messaging all of my friends, demanding to know where I was and what I was doing, who I was with, all of that. Uh, Started spreading some really nasty rumors about me. And at the time, I didn't think anything of it. I thought that was just the normal reaction of you know, a disheartened teenage boy. And it wasn't until I was actually an adult, actually studying psychology in a rape crisis center that I first heard that definition and I first realized what was going on. And so now as an adult, a lot of my volunteer work and a lot of my passions center around making sure that we are having those educational conversations when teens are teens and when they're entering the dating world. Because I don't believe there should ever be a situation where somebody is going through abuse and living through that and not even know that that's what's happening. That sounds like a very scary experience. And as you said, abuse can begin so early in children's lives. So how can we as ants spot the warning signs? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important to kind of zoom out and look at it from more of a scientific lens in in a way. So we know that there's different forms of abuse. We know there's physical, there's emotional, there's sexual, there's financial abuse. And then of course, what I experienced, which is stalking. And all of those different forms really center around this need from the abuser to exert power and control over the victim. And so what that can look like, especially for teens, that could be your partner constantly checking your phone, your social media, your messages, going through all of that. It could be extreme jealousy. And when I say that, I think that is often confusing for people because jealousy is super normal. We all experience jealousy at times, but it's those moments where you're really crossing the line and you're getting invasive, you're getting aggressive, those extreme demonstrations of jealousy. It could be isolating you from friends and family. It could be belittling, insults, name-calling, mood swings, an explosive temper, telling you what you can or can't do. So there's a lot of different warning signs or red flags that we might look for. But then for the ants listening, I think it's really important to remember that abuse really is a cycle. So we talk about this as the cycle of abuse. There's this 
big, explosive abuse event that could be the physical harm. Uh, it could be kind of this exploding at you verbally. And then we have this apology period where everything's great. They're bringing you flowers. They're bringing you teddy bears. I love you so much. I'll never do it again. And then we enter this like eggshell period where things, the tension's building up, something's coming, and then we have the explosive abusive episode again, and it all just starts over. And it's really that cycle. And so as we are looking in on our loved ones, trying to look out, are we seeing any of the warning signs? And are we seeing this cycle happening within our loved ones, our nieces, our nephews' relationships? Yeah, that's a great point, how it can it can look so differently. I think some people think that the abuse is only physical, but yes. know, there's a lot of emotional abuse that goes on that people don't recognize as abuse. So that's a great point to look at all the different types of abuse that can happen. Mm-hmm. How early do you think we should start having conversations with our nieces and nephews about this to kind of help them see these red flags? Oh, what a great question. So you're going to hear a little bit of my perspective as a developmental psychologist. So what I study in school is really early childhood development. And I am a firm believer that kids are capable of a lot more than we give them credit for. And so I really truly believe we can start this education preschool. It's just about making sure it's developmentally appropriate. So a lot of what I do is talking about consent, but talking about it in terms of like, we're going to ask somebody to give them a hug, or we're going to share our toys, Um, talking about healthy friendships at that kind of childlike stage. And then as we get more towards middle school, like I said, I was stalked when I was 14. So really, when we start making that transition from childhood to teen, that's when we can start talking a bit more explicitly about different forms of abuse and what that might look like. I like your point about the consent, because I know as aunts, we might be like, oh, yeah, come here, give me a hug and all these things. But, you know, for us to really ask for that permission. Right, right. And it's so much of it is modeling too. And it's it's something that we almost have to reprogram our minds because it that's how we grew up when we were kids, right? You give give your aunt a hug. Um, yep. <laughs> but just us looking at them and saying, can I give you a hug? That's teaching them what is and is not appropriate. Right. That's a great point. And if we think something may be going on in one of their relationships or at school, do you have any tips on how we can approach the topic with them? Definitely. So I think it's really, really important to let them open up to you when they're ready. I think when I'm out doing work, whether that's just as a volunteer or as a psychologist, I never want to force someone to disclose something that they're not comfortable talking about. Especially in these situations of abuse, they're having power and control taken away from them. So you don't want to be another person in their life that's doing that to them. You can talk about uh, you know, this educational aspect. You can be an educational resource for them. And so that might mean defining some of these abusive patterns. Another great example that you can do when you're watching TV, there are so many examples in romantic comedies, in teen dramas, where we actually see some of these warning signs. We see abuse and it's being glorified and we're being told that it's romantic. And so when you're sitting there watching a movie with your niece or nephew, that's a learning opportunity that you can start initiating some of those conversations. And then if they do choose to disclose anything to you, 
just being mindful of how you communicate that you are there for them, that you believe them, that you want to help them. And then maybe you can be that intermediary step of referring them to different resources within your city or your state that might be able to help them. That's great advice. I like the point of being able to point it out in a TV show or something that might feel a little less threatening of like, here's what it looks like. I'm not pointing at you, but they may see themselves in that scenario. So I think that's really helpful. And just knowing that a lot of times they may open up to us where they may not open up to a parent. And so just always being open and building trust with them so that they will come to us if something's going on so we can help them. So great points. Thank you. For sure. Switching gears to another topic you're passionate about preparing students for college. I know for me, it's been a long time since I've been in college, like the 90s. <laughs> so how, yeah, how has college changed since many of us aunts have been in school? You know what's so funny? You say it's been a while. You were in the 90s. I graduated college in 2018, so about five-ish years ago. And even from when I applied to college, things have changed so much. Um, There are so many different requirements for, you know, do you need the SAT? Do you not need the SAT? There are more resources than ever ever for students who are applying to school. And I think that's one of the coolest things ever. Uh, As a first-generation student myself, scholarships were really important to me. It was very, very important that I was bringing in some sort of financial support to help myself, that I wasn't being a burden to my family. And um, one thing that I recently learned, I have a blog online that I share these kinds of resources for undergraduates and graduate students. And I did a collaboration recently with scholarships.com. And so I was able to talk a little bit about scholarships.com and what they do. And so I was browsing on their Instagram page and there's just so many posts on Instagram for scholarships.com that are just these simple, easy, one paragraph 500 word essays that you could apply for a scholarship for like $10,000. And I think that's where applications have changed so much and the resources available have changed so much of teens are on Instagram. They are scrolling Instagram. And if you just follow that one site, you are going to be exposed to so many options for you to bring in some extra money for your education. College is so expensive now that those resources will be so helpful. I'm definitely checking that out for my niece. (laughs) Definitely. Then for the college application requirements, I know things have changed back when I applied. I think it was your GPA, your test scores, and that was it. We didn't have to write essays. We didn't have to have volunteer work, things like that. Do you have any ideas of how we can help them with some of those activities? I think... One thing that's really, really helpful when you are applying to college is being organized. And so I really recommend having a spreadsheet where you pick the however many schools you're going to apply to, whether that's three, whether that's five, whether that's seven, and you write down, okay, for this college, for Boston University, I need to submit two essays, one on this topic, one on that topic, and I need this much money for the application fee, and I need to submit my high school transcript, and I need to submit my SAT scores. And just put that all for all your schools in one Excel document so you have all of the information that you need. And then 
like you said, there are so many changing requirements, essays, extracurriculars, things like that. One thing that I really remind people is that by the time you get to the college application process, everybody has a high GPA. Everybody has worked hard in school. Everybody's gotten A's and B's um, depending on where you're applying. And so you need to find the thing that's going to help you stand out. And so start to really think about the experiences that you can get that are unique, that give you transferable skills. Miss America is a really great example in my life. I've talked about Miss America in all of my (laughs) college essays and all of my PhD school interviews because Miss America is the program that taught me how to interview. It taught me how to network. It taught me how to do public speaking. I was a Miss America representative and title holder when I was working in a domestic violence shelter. And so being able to say here, this is a really unique experience I have volunteering, doing extracurricular work, which has taught me time management, which has taught me organization. And those are skills that are going to help me thrive at this university. So just, I I think, zooming out there, my advice, stay organized with your application timeline and then really think about how you can be a well-rounded applicant. You're not just smart. You are smart and accomplished and you're excelling in multiple different areas and they want to see all of those sides of you. You've shared how much the Miss America program has really helped you. Can you talk a little bit more about somebody was interested in getting involved in that, what they could do and anything else you can share about the program? Definitely. So Miss America actually recently made some changes. So the age that you need to be to compete for Miss America is 18 to 28, which is really, really incredible because that now gives room for older women who are in graduate school, for example, uh, or who have existing student loan debt to come and compete. Miss America is the nation's largest provider of scholarship dollars for young women. And that is not as well known of a fact as it needs to be. So I'll repeat that one time. Miss America is the nation's largest provider of scholarship dollars for young women. Uh, And if you have nieces who are on the younger side, maybe they're under 18 and you're wondering how this is applicable to them. We also have a sister program, Miss America's Teen, which also offers scholarship dollars to teens. A lot of teens end up getting a full ride to various universities. I know the University of Alabama is a huge supporter of the Miss America Teen program. So Miss America is an opportunity for you to get some money for school while also having really important personal development opportunities as well. There is so much of who I am today that has come out of Miss America. Like I said earlier, I have to do a 10-minute interview where I talk about current events and I talk about politics and I talk about school and I talk about my personal community service initiative. That's a kind of thought and critical thinking that you're not going to get elsewhere. And another thing I often say about Miss America, which I think is really special, there are local competitions. You're going to go, you're going to compete for your local competition. Let's say you compete against 12 girls and you win. That's great. And then you go to your state competition and you compete against 20 to 50 girls. And out of that 20 to 50 girls, one girl will win. And then you go to Miss America and 50 girls are there. And out of those 50 girls, one girl will win. And that's great for them. But those other times, that moment of like, oh, I've come to compete and I didn't quite walk away with the crown is still so valuable. A lot of times we don't get opportunities to fail as as young women who are growing up. And it's those moments of failure that I believe we really grow, that we really develop character. And so Miss America is an opportunity that you can get some scholarship dollars. Whether or not you win, you will get scholarships. 
And you're going to have character development. You're going to have professional development. You're going to network. You're going to meet really incredible people. You're going to have really incredible volunteer opportunities. There's not really a a disadvantage to competing in my eyes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing about that. I know my nieces are beautiful inside and out, so I'll have to talk to them about this. (laughs) Definitely. Send them my way. If anybody wants advice, shoot me an email. (laughs) Thank you so much. And then going to career choices. So I know some people are still trying to figure out what do I want to be when I grow up? That might still be me. But uh, for our young people, as they're looking at career choices, can you share like how you decided on your career path and maybe how we can also help our nieces and nephews in exploring? I think exploration is is really the key word there. If you are going to commit yourself to a career, make sure it's one that you like. And that comes with a lot of exploring. By the time that I entered my undergraduate education, I was 100% sure I wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. And the only reason I thought that was because I had been watching a little too much Grey's Anatomy in my free time. (laughs) But I didn't actually like chemistry and I didn't actually like organic chemistry to be specific. So you know, I dived into other classes. I took classes in the English department. I took classes in the American studies department. I took classes in the psychology department. And being able to branch out and explore a lot of different areas was really helpful for me. Same thing with my volunteer work. Being able to volunteer in a lot of different career paths was really helpful for me to really narrow down what I wanted. And in terms of what aunts can do to really support their nieces and nephews along that process, be supportive of that exploration. I think a lot of times we come into college and put a lot of pressure on ourselves to declare a major. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves to pick the career path that we're going to commit to. And to have family behind you that is supportive of you exploring and supportive of you finding out what's best for you is beyond helpful. That's great advice. You had the words, little girls with dreams become women with vision on your graduation cap. (laughs) I did, yes, for my master's degree. I love that. I love that. Uh, Do you have any final advice for us aunts on how we can support and encourage our nieces and nephews' dreams? I would say the best thing you can do is to simultaneously be the biggest cheerleader and the voice of reason. Whenever I am working with mentors, whether that's aunts, whether that's parents, whether that's mentors at work, I love when they're able to show me a different perspective, when they're able to advise me, when they're able to guide me, but they're also able to give me the freedom to stand on my own two feet and make my own decisions. And I know that regardless of whatever choice I make, whether I'm doing what they've told me to do or whether I'm kind of going down another path, that they're going to be in my corner, that they're going to be supporting me. That's really special. And that's the kind of relationship that thrives in my eyes. So be that cheerleader, be in their corner, be supportive, but also advise them and give them that voice of reason and kind of say, you know, here's what I suggest. Here's my advice. But whatever you choose, whatever path you go down, I love you and I'm going to support you no matter what. I love that. That's great advice for us to be supportive and helpful at the same time. If our listeners want to connect with you, where can they find you? Yes. So you can find me at Arcadia Yule. I know that's kind of a mouthful, but it's A-R-C-A-D-I-A-E-W-E-L-L. That's on Instagram, TikTok, and I believe on Twitter as well. Um, And you can also find me on my website, ArcadiaYule.com. 
if you are interested in more of the pageant side of things, you can also follow my journey to Miss Massachusetts through at Miss Boston Org. All right, great. And I will put those links in the show notes. So if you didn't quite catch the spelling, you can just click on the link and and find that. So perfect. That's probably a little easier. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Arcadia. You are so inspiring. And thank you for sharing more information for us aunts of how we can help our nieces and nephews. And it's just amazing advice for us. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you for listening to Anecdotes. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes and also join us on our Facebook group to talk with other ants. You can join that group at facebook.com slash groups slash anecdotes. That's spelled A-U-N-T-E-C-D-O-T-E-S. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, email me at anecdotes at gmail.com.